Welcome to the Ubuntu Nutrition Podcast, episode number 11. Today I have a renowned researcher, author, speaker, educator, and I'm definitely leaving a few out. His name is Alan Aragon. You might have heard of him. We get into the importance of evidence-based recommendations and everything pertaining to muscle mass gain. So sit back, relax, and listen up. What's going on, people? So, today I have a renowned researcher, speaker, educator, and many other titles. Alan Aragon. He's the Alan Aragon on Instagram. You can find him there. He's well known and he operates in the space of sports and exercise nutrition and strength and conditioning and pretty much everything in between. He has a research review, which in the podcast we talk about. I'm not going to make this intro very long because the actual chat with Alan itself goes on for about an hour and 15 minutes. And I realized that my intros were unbearably long to my previous episodes. Like I think I introduced some of the guests about four different times before we actually start talking. So no more, I promise. But anyway, Alan is excellent at communicating evidence-based science to the lay population and you'll see you'll see you know in this hopefully you'll be able to stick along with it the whole the whole way if you have any questions about any aspects feel free to pop them on i recommend pulling out a notepad and jotting some notes down because there are so many nuggets and just little tidbits of valuable information and just takeaways that you can apply to your life right now and your training so yeah it was such a learning opportunity for me honestly and hopefully it will be for you. So, without further ado, the Alan Aragon. Okay, so this is the Ubuntu Nutrition Podcast with a fantastic guest. I'm very, very excited to have this chat. It is Alan Aragon. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Alan, and welcome. Thank you for having me, Patrick. Really a privilege and an honor to be here. Thank you. Great. So would you just, for the very minor few that don't know who you are, would you just maybe tell us a bit about yourself, your experience in the field of nutrition and what you've been doing currently and in the past? Okay. So it's so funny because every podcast I do, I, this is the first question that's asked for me to introduce myself and say who I am. And every time um, I try to do that, I try to make it a slightly, slightly different bit of information than the last, and I never succeed. So here we go. <laughs> love it. Love it. <laughs> so my current role is a researcher and an educator. And so as a, as a researcher, I work with other science and sciency people. Um, for example, right now I'm working on a couple of papers, a couple of review papers. One of them is going to be on, well, I can't disclose the, the topic of that. And the other one is on, well, I can't disclose the topic of that either. But um, Guillermo Escalante is the lead author of, uh, of one of the papers I'm doing. And you, you might know him as Dr. Gift on, uh, on social media. 
And then the other paper I'm doing um, is with Daniel Plotkin and uh, Brad Schoenfeld. And so what we do is we try our best to gather the, the scientific information and present it to professionals and enthusiasts in the field and, and try to get people educated and try to raise the bar that way just by making people smarter, more informed, and more effective in the field. So <clears throat> that's my current role right now. Before COVID hit, uh, there was a, a lot of seminars, a lot of uh, live conference lectures and, and, uh, and workshops. Uh, I actually had five seminar workshops scheduled for 2020 that got ditched because of COVID. So that's an unfortunate thing. But, um, but yeah, prior to that, man, um, I, I started my work in this field in 1992. So, uh, you know, what's the math on that? Is that, is that 28 years or is that? Well, I'm 25. I was born 94. So <laughs> 27 years, 28 years. Yeah. Yeah. 28. Wow. Right. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I started my, my work in the field, um, in 1992 and it was mostly in personal training. And, uh, I, I really kind of got heavily involved with, uh, nutritional counseling in the early, early two thousands. And, um, my research career really, really kind of, um, started, uh, around 2010, 2013. It really, I started publishing in, in 2013. So that, that's kind of, um, what I do and, and who I am in the field is one of the pioneers or forefathers of the evidence-based movement in the fitness industry. So, um, it's happy to see that the evidence-based movement has, uh, continued through through at least a couple generations now with with uh, a lot of the uh, new upstarts um, pushing it out to the masses. So I'm happy to see that happening. And what do you mean by evidence based? Just for people, because it's so fantastic that it's a movement now and it's trending. Um, just maybe just to briefly explain what that is when it comes to nutrition. Yeah, sure, sure. Evidence based practice originated in medicine. And um, its origin in medicine is interesting because um, medicine started out with just what practitioners were doing and seeing was effective in the field. And there really was no research basis upon which recommendations uh, or, or diagnoses or, or you know, the, the dispensation of medicines and things like that. There was no scientific basis for that. We had to strictly rely on anecdotes, uh, field observations, and, and such. But as the research basis grew, as the body of literature grew, we are able to, instead of looking strictly at anecdote and um, listening to some of the, you know, the, the big names in, in the field of medicine or the, or the successful doctors or whatnot, mm -hmm. we can actually look at clinical trials and see what happens objectively with a lot less bias and a lot less validity threats than might be present in somebody's anecdotes. So that's kind of the birth of the evidence-based movement is taking a look at the research and weighing it against field experience. And so that's, that's sort of the foundation of it. And then the third tier, or, or rather the third component 
of evidence-based medicine is just individualizing to the patient or client and, and how they respond to the protocol. So you've got the research basis, or you've got the literature, in quotes, and you've got uh, personal experience or, or field observations. And then the third component, you kind of uh, cast everything to the wind if it's not working individually for the client and you do exactly what, what you find to work for the client. Yep. Um, in spite of the literature and in spite of what you've seen previously. So that, the, that, if you can picture a Venn diagram of those three things and the portion in the middle where they all intersect, that's really what evidence-based practice is, whether it's evidence-based medicine, evidence-based fitness, it's always that conglomerate of the research, your field observations, and individual client response. Okay, gotcha, that's a brilliant explanation. That's definitely going to be a little soundbite because that's brilliant, brilliant, well put. <laughs> and how important is it to be able to communicate that to the client that you're individualizing it around? Is that something that's currently not, I say, I suppose, well-founded yet? Because that's something that I, I try to focus on. And that's why I kind of have the likes of yourself. And I'm, it might seem that I'm bringing anyone on, but I'm very careful to bring people on that I, can, that I feel can speak to general audiences. And mm. you're brilliant at that. You, you know, you can speak to the general, the lay population. So I'm just wondering, is that something that is currently underdeveloped? I think it is. I think that researchers, uh, scientists in general, um, a lot of them are just uh, uh, socially and communicatively challenged. And um, they make some of the worst writers possible. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's very difficult for researcher types to connect with the general audience. And you see this all the time. Some of the most brilliant folks uh, just can't get the message across. Mm -hmm. And when they do try to get the message across, they can only do it in 5,000 words or more. Yeah. And it presents a problem for um, the lay public's understanding of, of, of the uh, evidence basis of what they need to, to have a grasp of. So, so yeah, it is, it is an issue, man. There, there, there definitely needs to be better communication from the scientific realm or the ivory tower all the way to the lay public. And if we can make that connection, if we can make that communication better, then we'll move a little further along. Absolutely. And that's a perfect segue into your research review. And that's exactly what I feel you do with that research review. I'm a subscriber myself. Now I just finished up the master's, so I haven't had a chance to really deep dive, but what was the motivation for starting that, that write up and why is it so important? Well, first of all, Patrick, thank you for subscribing to the research review. I, I think that people who have the, the, the sense or the passion to subscribe to the research review are, are really special folks. Um, not just because they're supporting my work, but because you can see the value in um, getting, getting a better handle on how to bridge the gap between research and practice. Because there's this universe of scientific findings, of scientific data and, and research, this universe of experiments out there. But there is um, very few options um, as to how to kind of funnel that information and impact results of, of people in the real world. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So, so yes, yes, I, I appreciate you, you subscribing to the research review. The way that it started is in 2000, in the early 2000s, actually, I, I joined the bodybuilding.com forums in 2003. And um, I was in private nutritional counseling practice at the time. And I saw a lot of interesting conversations going on in the bodybuilding community uh, on uh, specifically on the nutrition forums in the bodybuilding community. I saw a lot of conversations about uh, special foods or magic foods, good foods and bad foods, and everybody had their own personal philosophy or personal list of foods that would make you look great. And these foods Mm. will just, you know, uh, and, and a bunch of different rules and things like that. Like, for example, high glycemic index versus low glycemic index, um, brown rice versus white rice, and uh, red meat versus chicken and fish. What does it do? You know, what does it do to your body composition? All this funny stuff. Um, And I thought it was really fun to engage in those conversations and offer my opinion and eventually um, get into a lot of debates, which were fun, which were a fun thing as long as you kept it civil. Not all of them remained civil. There, there was a lot of name calling sometimes and a lot of hurt feelings, but uh, ultimately there was a lot of learning to be had. And once again, a lot of questions that, that people had. And I saw the value in being able to bring research-based answers to these discussions. But mm. the thing is, I would spend like at least half the day on the forums answering the questions and sometimes I would have to rush the answers because there were so many questions to answer. And uh, I decided what would be a much better way to get these questions answered is if I just did a, a formal type of service for this kind of thing. And um, because I, I was doing this for free, I, I, I would see clients all day and then I would get on the forums and, and debate, discuss and answer questions all night. Wow. Like, and so um, it was like having a double time job, you know, or, or working for free full time. Yeah. And so uh, that was my idea to get this research review going. And uh, I finally launched it in 2008. It took me that long to get the nerve to actually do that. And so I've been doing monthly issues of the research review since 2008. Uh, so that's 12 years running of monthly issues. And uh uh, it's been great. It's been cool to see um, a handful of my followers and my students start their own research reviews too. It's great. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's actually something me and my buddy are looking at down the line maybe, but uh, a much simpler degree, but they are so, you really communicate, you know, these, it's like, we don't advise our clients to go and read research. People that are yeah. in different fields and some people mistake evidence-based for being able to read research and that we're, we're advising everyone to be able to read research, but mm-hmm. people can't decipher themselves whether a study has been done ethically, whether it's been controlled well. And I think that's where the value comes that, you know, you speak in very, you use very general language. You don't need 5,000 words or more and you give them your opinion, your take, but not a, an emotionally fueled take, you know, a very objective take. Um, sure. So yeah, yes. I, I think it's great. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's important too that like you, you, like you mentioned, you can't just send your clients to, even if you t- give them the skills to uh, critically appraise a, a study, let's say, if they don't have a backlog of knowledge 
and how this study fits into the existing body of evidence. What, how does it fit as a puzzle piece? Mm -hmm. You know, how does it impact the, the existing body of literature? What's different about this study? What's better or worse about this study compared to the previous contributions to the topic area? That stuff is, it's difficult to, uh, for, for somebody who's fresh out the, fresh off the boat to, to, to know and have some insight with. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why how somebody like yourself, who's been in the field for a while would know, okay, so off, ah, we have a new intermittent fasting, intermittent fasting study coming down the pike. Hmm. Did they include resistance training or was it a, how, how long was the feeding window? And, um, was there an interaction between the exercise and the feeding protocol? Uh, how does it fit on the backdrop of, of the existing research by Tinley and, and Morrow and, 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 the rest who, who have actually taken time, time restricted feeding studies and added a, a training element to it. So, so yeah, it, it's, it is very difficult to, for, to just sort of request that the layperson get read up on, on yeah. research and just know what a given study means to the given topic area. Yeah, that's a great, that's a brilliant point. Even if you give them the tools, they don't have the context or the, the backlog of the previous, yeah, the body of evidence is great. Okay, so before we dive into today's topic, which is pretty much everything uh, muscle gain, I get a lot of questions about that on a daily basis. I just wanted to ask you about the whole Joe Rogan um, saga, because I know two years ago I was in Denmark and my good friend who actually introduced me to your content a few years back was telling me, Alan Aragon's going on Joe Rogan. This is going to be unbelievable. And I think it was to debate someone within the paleo kind of area, was it? if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Uh, but it never came to fruition. So I was just wondering yeah. and if there's any plans in the future to go on. <laughs> Dude, uh, the, Ro the, the Joe Rogan ship may have passed for me. Okay. Um, I, I was first invited in <clears throat> 2014. So this was indeed when, when the paleo thing was, was big. The paleo conversation was, was a constant thing in social media. And I was highly critical of the paleo rules. And specifically, I was critical of the uh, no dairy, no beans, no grains. <laughs> um, there's things to say about each one of those, of those rules, but I just found the justifi justifications for those rules were not sound scientifically. And uh, a lot of this, the, the reasoning was just incorrect. And so I got, a, I got contacted by a gentleman named Matt Staggs, who's Joe Rogan's publicist, or at least his publicist at the time. And he invited me on the show. But 2014 is right when my uh, speaking career got, was picking up some, some major momentum. So uh, I was on a plane, like, goodness, once a month, twice a month, um, just nonstop, man. And, and so my travel schedule did not allow me to uh, accept the invitation to the Joe Rogan show in 2014. Um, so I got invited once again in 2015 when um, Gary Taubes released his second book. Um, I think 
I, I, okay, I don't remember the exact title of Gary Taubes' second book, but it's something like The Case Against Sugar. Case Against Sugar, yeah. Something about sugar, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and I, I had, I had an, a, a debate with, um, with Gary Taubes in, in England, uh, and, and the debate is, is re a really hilarious debate because with Gary Taubes was completely unprepared I don't know what the hell he was thinking. He thought it was just going to be the Gary Taubes show or something. He was going to do his normal shtick. And he had no, he had like one study to present. That was an observational study that was 30 years old. That's the only research he brought to the debate. And oh he had, gosh. we had 45 minutes each to present our case over a series of rounds. So that went very badly for him. Uh, it, it was funny. It, it really was funny. And so, uh, Joe Rogan caught uh, caught wind of that, I suppose, and so I was invited again onto the Joe Rogan show, and this was 2015, and my seminar career was still in full swing, dude. Um, I was on a plane once again, like once, twice a month, and there was just no room in the schedule to uh, to make the dates that they presented for me, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, they just gave up. <laughs> they just gave up on inviting me. And so now, even if I were to knock on the door and say, Hey, uh, let's, let's get me on the show somehow. There's, I don't think, I don't think it's realistic for, for anybody, but like an A-list celebrity or at least a B or C-list celebrity to, uh, get on Joe Rogan at this point, because it is, it's a different animal than it was in 2014, 2015. Yeah. You know, 2014, 2015, you had regular people going on the show. Yeah. Now you have to have an enormous, enormous platform and, and you have to be quite famous or, or at least notorious enough <laughs> to be on the Joe Rogan show. And I don't think I'm, I'm famous enough nor notorious enough. So I would have to work on one of those two uh, attributes. I'm not sure about that if you are not famous enough, but I think saying what you said that it's a different animal altogether, he loves nutrition and he, he loves to preach it too. So and I, you never know. You never know. He could like, you know, he always has a, a Dr. Rhonda Patrick on and he loves just uh, learning on the podcast. He almost has them on for himself rather than for the 10 million fucking listeners, you know, but you never yeah. know. You never know. That's, I love how you refuse to, you know, ditch your schedule for this big, huge podcast. I love that. That's because I had heard a different story. That's, that's, I didn't realize that. That's great. That's great. Yeah, man. Yep. Respect yep. is even higher. You know what? Maybe, uh, maybe when, when the pandemic dies down, I'll give Matt an email and ask him if he's still Joe Rogan's publicist and if he still wants to let Joe know that, that I'm out there and we can try to schedule it again. Oh, you should. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. Joe, Joe still follows me on Twitter. Okay. I think on in Instagram too, but um, on Twitter, he follows me, but Twitter is one of those um, platforms where the, the information is, is so ADHD and it's, it's hard to learn anything unless you link something meaningful on mm -hmm. Twitter. You know, you don't necessarily get a chance to, uh, teach or or inform people about anything major, right? You know, within what is it? Is it like twenty, whatever the character limit? One hundred and fifty characters, two, yeah, something yeah. like that. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. That's something that Joe actually always says himself, and he's right. You're you're dead on there. That 
you can't say a whole lot. You can't give context, you know? Yep. Yep. You can fight. You can call people names really well on Twitter. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. And you can misread messages, you know, cause you don't have their video or you're not talking to them live mm-hmm. you can take things. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's a great intro. I might've, uh, I might have motivated Alan Aragon to go on Joe Rogan. <laughs> That's something I'll carry to the grave. Planted the seed. <laughs> um, okay, so today, I suppose, I mean, I literally have a thousand questions I'd love to ask, but I said for the simplicity and for the sake of listeners, um, and this is something I get a lot, I was going to go with just a specific topic, and I've sent you some of the questions uh, pertaining to everything muscle gain. And that's something you have quite a bit of experience in and you have your own book that you co-authored yes. on. All right. Which uh, I suppose we can, we can get to, maybe if you just want to mention what the book is and when you wrote it and kind of what it entails. It's, it's embarrassingly called The Lean Muscle Diet. I hate the name and I will always hate the name till the end of time. I wrote it with a gentleman named Lou Schuler. He actually invited me onto the project okay. uh, when, when I was the hot ticket <laughs> back in 2014. Um, uh, and, and so it, it's a good book. It's a good yeah. book. Uh, it, it's, it was published by Rodale Publishing, who publishes um, Men's Health and a bunch of other, other big publications. So they're, they're a big publishing house. And uh, it's funny because everybody who gets into the writing thing, they want to be published. They want to be a published author. Mm. And so in order to call yourself a published author, you have to get signed by one of these, these big, big companies like Random House or Rodale or whatnot. Um, I never gave a crap about becoming a published author in that realm. You know, I, I, I really, my aspiration was to be a published author in the peer reviewed literature. Mm-hmm. So um, this project, this book, The Lean Muscle Diet, it's a good book. Uh, I, I have to say that um, there, there are uh, aspects of it that I would redo to simplify it because we're talking to the lay audience. And, um, um, but you know what? It, it's really well written. Lou Schuler does a great job. Uh, he, he has a a fantastic voice for speaking to uh, the uh, the the audience who aren't necessarily a bunch of uh, researchers and scientists, and um, yeah, it, it's a good book. <laughs> great, great. And so, okay, so I suppose we will dive right in and we'll start from the very basics. Why is it that we need muscle uh, aside from lifting heavy things? And why is it one of the first steps in, say, a weight loss regime? Okay, so think about it like muscle is where the magic happens, okay? Muscle is the major site of fuel disposal, of of nutrient processing. Uh, Well, actually, you know, you could say the liver is, but... Muscle is the major oxidative site of, of fuels. And it, um, you, can, you can pretty much call muscle your, your metabolically active tissue that's responsible for keeping your 
musculoskeletal system intact because without muscle you wouldn't be able to move joints and you wouldn't be able to properly maintain bone health and so um muscle is is crucial it's kind of the the starting point that activates the even the cardiovascular system without properly functioning muscle you couldn't move the body to impact cardiovascular activity so um yeah muscle is where the magic happens okay and when we're talking to when i'm working with people who have the goal of losing weight and i advise them to increase their regular strength training sessions they look at me and they say hey i'm trying to get skinnier i'm not trying to get buff i'm trying to lose weight i'm not trying to put it on and i try to explain to them that just like you say it's the metabolically active tissue it's going to improve functioning it's going to increase your daily expenditure so is there more to that why is it why is it so important to to kind of get rid of that stigma that you're going to be buff for 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 all people that are trying to lose weight yeah it's it's very difficult to get muscular even the people who try really hard and have favorable genetics for getting buff have a have a, a it, it it's a a very stiff challenge and it takes many years mm-hmm. um now there are people who are under the impression that they get big really fast but fact of the matter is they they probably eat a lot as well and it's a kind of a combination of of lean body mass and body fat that they put on um rather quickly yeah so the emphasis on resistance training in the context of weight loss is, is really important because you have to lose the right kind of weight if you embark on a fat loss journey or a weight loss journey and you lose too much lean body mass Uh, or too much muscle, then at the end of the rainbow, you will not have as much leverage to eat very very much calories. You know, you're, in order to properly feed the body, or in order to give yourself the, in quotes, the leverage to eat a reasonable amount of food, the name of the game would be to keep your lean mass as much as possible, or even increase it if you can while you lose fat mass because it's it's the lean mass that you're you're feeding and it is the lean mass that will allow just a a a multitude of clinical benefits a multitude of aesthetic and functional and, and fitness and strength related benefits as well so i guess the first part of that convoluted answer would be it's very difficult to get buff and muscular Mm-hmm. Even if you have optimal androgen levels, optimal um, concentration of androgen receptors in the muscle, and you know what? Even if you throw drugs on top of that and supplements on top of that, it's still a a very difficult and long process to get buff. So don't worry about that. It's easy to get fat. It's potentially easy to get fuff. <laughs> combination of fatness and buffness um but yeah I, I i would highly advise people to not not worry about getting too big too fast yeah, i've never heard that term fuff i like it <laughs> i like it um that's a great one so i started off i've only i'm only 10 podcast episodes in and i started this whole thing off with uh, a two-part series on the metabolic adaptation that can that you can incur 
from severe uh, caloric restriction and looking, you know, at the general, you know, recreation, recreationally active person and athletes uh, who are elite. What, what place does a high protein diet have in a weight loss regime for maintaining that lean mass? And, you know, in the absence of high protein diet, how much impact does the weight loss or the, sorry, the muscle loss play in, you know, the down regulated energy expenditure, the feelings of fatigue, the slowed weight loss. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's a okay. long, long, long question. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I got it. I got it. Um, it, it plays a, a crucial and major role and lean body mass, the collectively, um, not just muscle, but just lean, your, your lean body mass, muscle, bone, uh, viscera, all, all that's, that's your lean body mass. But collectively lean body mass is the largest determinant of, uh, your resting metabolic rate, or in other words, the amount of calories that you burn uh, doing absolutely nothing just to survive mm-hmm. in a 24 in hour period. That's your resting metabolic rate, as you know, and muscles role in impacting resting metabolic rate. It in isolation doesn't seem very major. It's roughly about 13, eh, six to 13 calories per, per pound, um, depending mm-hmm. uh, per day. So that's muscle on its own. Yeah. But w- how that muscle acts as a component in a cascade of, of things that impact energy expenditure is what is, is, is really the, the issue with muscle loss. Because if you lose muscle, you also drop in activity and you also drop in your body's ability to um, process nutrients and your body's ability to partition um, fuels and incoming incoming nutrients into lean tissue versus fat tissue. And so there's a number of uh, processes at work that make muscle very crucial for um, a healthy metabolism. And so um, when you talk about how protein relates to muscle, without a certain minimum amount of protein, your body is simply not going to hold on to muscle tissue. It's imperative for survival. You can lose about a third of your lean body mass and still survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but much more than that, then, then you, you're gone, bro. <laughs> so um, there's quite a, um, a large margin of LBM loss available to you just strictly to be able to survive. Um, unfortunately, as you lose this lean body mass, um, uh, there, there's just a multitude of bodily functions that will be suboptimized and eventually just shorted out completely. And this can be prevented by consuming enough protein. So, um, and not just enough ca- protein, but enough protein and enough calories to not lose weight too quickly. Yeah. But protein is, is crucial. It's a non-negotiable for that process. You can optimize your calories, total calories per day, but if your protein is suboptimal, let's say somewhere less than 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilo, um, then you're going to lose lean body mass, you're going to lose uh, muscle tissue, and that will compromise you metabolically. Um, the way that uh, metabolic adaptations occur 
it, I'm just sort of running through the different components of the question. <laughs> there was um, a lot. Yeah. Um, metabolic adaptation or, or in quotes, starvation mode. Um, that is an interesting phenomenon because uh, there's a lot of mythology around it where people think that after a certain point of, of, of skating along on a starvation type diet, that your body's metabolism drops like a stone and then you just hang on to fat. And that's, that's just not true. Well, it, it, and, and the way that we know, <laughs> the way that we know it's not true is through historical and observational studies like the Minnesota experiment, the Minnesota starvation experiment, uh, as well as some of the more modern, uh, controlled experiments on what happens with, uh, metabolism under caloric deficits. Mm -hmm. So the reason why people think that there is some sort of starvation mode phenomenon that happens is because they're, they're listening to anecdotes of people who swear that they're consuming, let's say a thousand calories a day or 1200 calories a day. And they're maintaining a body weight that would be totally unrepresentative of that really low caloric intake. Like let's say they're holding at like 200 pounds or, or something along those lines and they're consuming 1200 calories and they swear up and down. I swear I'm doing this. But the thing is people can swear up and down and still be wrong. Yeah. And they, yeah. they can swear up and down that they're complying, uh, eating 1200 calories a day, let's imagine and staying 200 pounds. Yeah. They're doing that for six days out of the week, but on the seventh day they binge and then they, sweep that binge under the rug because it's a shameful thing to report a binge mm -hmm. and the, the shame associated with not complying to an assigned protocol is, is pretty major. It's pretty major because you're kind of admitting that you're, you know, you, you, you're, you associate that binge with um, your own personal morality and people don't, people don't want to dive into that level of, uh, <clears throat> of shame. <laughs> so, um, it's a complicated thing, man. It is a complicated thing. The, the, the element of energy expenditure that decreases most substantially during um, a so-called metabolic adaptation or a dropping of energy expenditure during diet is people's unconscious activity. So uh, people's non-exercise physical activity will take the biggest hit when, um, when dieting. So it's not resting metabolic rate that goes down. That might go down, you know, who knows, 10%. Okay. You know, potentially 15% if you're, you know, if in extreme cases. But it is the, the non-exercise activity, the fidgeting, the amount of walking and moving you do through the day and even through the night, uh, that will go down. And then um, it will appear as if, your metabolism is slowing down, but really it's your non-exercise activity that's unintentionally, a lot of the times, decreasing enough to have a meaningful impact on your program. So, so that's really what uh, um, metabolic adaptation is all about, is you're adapting to your starvation diet by subconsciously not moving nearly as much as you used to. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great way to put it. Uh, I was listening to Eric Helms. He did a podcast and I thought it was brilliant. Um, I can't remember who he was on. It was, it was a really good one about this whole idea of uh, NEAT decreasing. 
And he, he gave an example that really kind of painted it clearly for me. He said, when you're, this is how I explain it. You might be on a, a very energy restricted diet, an intense energy restricted diet. You walk out the driveway, you walk past your mailbox, you forget that you just walked past it without checking it, but you're 10 feet away. When you're on this diet, the chances are your brain is going to tell your body, Hey, we'll get it on the way back. Mm-hmm. But when you're, you're eating to maintenance and you're good, it's no problem for you to turn around and get it. And that it's like, it's a cascade of things going on in your body. It's your brain saying, no, 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 no. We don't need to expend two more calories here to turn back, which I just thought, I thought that was an excellent way to kind of describe it Mm -hmm. and the importance of like non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Yeah. Speaking of Eric, um, (laughs) we, we talked about him and his, uh, his pre-contest um, experiences with, with, with reductions in NEAT. And um, there's a lot of things that happen during the day or during the course of the week that, that completely disappear um, okay. during the pre-contest phase. So one thing that isn't talked about a lot because it's kind of embarrassing is the sex lives of um, bodybuilding competitors. During... Um, the pre-contest phase, which a lot of natural bodybuilders drag out for six months. So half the year they're prepping for a show. Well, um, at least half of that time, they're no longer having intimate relations with their partner (laughs) because libido goes out the window and with libido out the window, any libido related physical activity goes out the window as well. Ah, yes, yes. And, um, depending on who you are and how acrobatic you are, um, you may be losing a lot of energy expenditure once you cancel out your, your sex life for several months. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's another form of a reduction in non-exercise activity. Absolutely. Well, with Paul Carter, it might be an exercise activity because he's, you know, he's, he's a real acrobat with those sort of things, but <laughs> it's an important one. Yeah. That's talked about. Okay, so um, what's up, Paul? Shout out, man. <laughs> so in, in my, in la- last year in Ireland, have you heard of the sport Gaelic football? I've heard of it. I'm, I'm okay. not familiar with the, the details of it, though. Okay. So, you, you'll, so have to, you'll have to explain it to me. I get that a lot. So, and I'm terrible at doing it. But it's basically a mix between soccer and basketball. And it's, it's played on a, a field and it's, I don't know if you know Aussie rules in Australia, but it's actually very similar to that where they have a ball, they have, to, they have to drop it, kick it back up to themselves and bounce it while they're running. And then they have to kick it over what's like a rugby post. That sounds yeah. hectic, man. That sounds- it's hectic. It is Ooh. for sure. So I would have worked with um, a high level team in Ireland last year. And one of the complaints, sorry, this is me now moving away from the general public and weight loss to athletes and lean muscle uh, cruel. So I had many, many players come to me and say, I just can't gain muscle. I just can't do it. I've eaten everything. I'm, I'm eating six, seven meals a day. I'm eating high protein. And so my question to you is, are there such thing as hard gainers and how much does like a genetic role or predisposition play into that? And what would your recommendations for those people be? There are, there, there is a such thing as hard gainers 
only in the sense that some individuals have a strong tendency to ramp up their non-exercise activity in response to caloric surpluses. So the, it, it's not an intentional phenomenon, but if some people, if you were to have them slam an extra thousand calories a day, then they will subconsciously uh, counteract that surplus by doing a lot more fidgeting, a lot more hyperkinetic type of movement, mm-hmm. um, and even potentially some some uh, some physiological uh, phenomena at, at sort of the, the hormone level that could possibly like like upticks in thyroid activity that could uh, increase energy expenditure even at the resting level that would counteract that, that, uh, uh, that increased food intake. So, but, but that would be the smaller component of the phenomenon. The much larger component would be an increase in just ticks and movements and, and, and just being hyperkinetic in response to that, uh, imposed demand. Okay. The, the stress of eating more. The body body sees a threat to homeostasis. So the body's goal is to just stay the same, just keep things steady. Um, so with with some individuals, and this has been shown in research by Levine uh, as as early as the as the nineties, where um, running like a thousand calorie surplus over, I believe it was an eight week period. Uh, some individuals. Uh, the, the average, um, the average need le- or the average non-exercise activity energy expenditure was somewhere four to five hundred calories. So um, wow. half of that surplus got swallowed up right off the bat. And uh, some of the some of these individuals, um, their neat expenditure was was as high as like seven hundred calories. And and so um, with those individuals, it was the equivalent of not feeding them a thousand calorie surplus, but just a little 300 calorie surplus. Okay. And, and so, so yeah, it, it's pretty fascinating, uh, the whole hard gainer phenomenon. And, um, if somebody historically is a hard gainer, they have a tough time gaining muscle, then there's a, a good chance that they have a high tendency to ramp up their non-exercise activity. And the only recourse with those kind of individuals is figuring out how to get more calories in, how to get more liquid calorie, high, higher quality liquid calories in, in order to um, actually impose a caloric surplus. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it takes adding three shakes a day in addition to uh, whatever their existing meal schedule is. Sometimes more, depending on, on, on how hard of a gainer this, this person is. But usually it's, it's liquid, liquid nutrition that, that'll kind of come to the rescue with some of the more difficult cases. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. That's really, really interesting. Wow. Um, and then I know this is a topic that you are very, very involved in and probably have a lot to say on. And you have that paper with Schoenfield looking at meal timing. And, you know, I have a lot of people who come to me with that team, especially looking at their meal timing before they're looking at their day, their daily protein and calorie intake. And yeah, I have a friend who likes to say it's majoring in the minors before you, yes. you know, you look at the day long. So how important is meal timing? Is it important at all? Yeah, it, it really depends on the goal oh, sorry, for, yes. for that. Yeah. And, and so with, um, with athletic performance 
meal timing is very important. Uh, with things like altering body composition, it really kind of is this uh, dichotomous um, uh, level of importance where if you're trying to gain muscle, then the timing is not as important. I'm, I'm sorry. If you're trying to gain muscle, then the timing is more important than if you're trying to keep muscle under okay. uh, circumstances of um, dieting or a okay. hypocaloric conditions. So that's sort of the three pronged answer to that for athletic performance. It can be very important yeah. for changing body composition. On one end you have dieters who their main objective is to lose body fat and keep muscle. Timing is not very important. Okay. Uh, on the other end of uh, altering body composition, you have individuals whose main goal is to gain muscle. And in that case, it's maybe not so much timing that's that's important, but it's distribution of the nutrients through the day, specifically with protein, mm -hmm. that can impact their rate of muscle gain. So that's kind of the, the, the sort of the higher level overview of, of that answer. Yeah, complicated answer. Yeah, that was my fault. I, I meant to actually relate it specifically to gaining muscle mass. Um, mm -hmm. So when you say distribution, do you just mean ensuring you get enough protein uh, enough complete protein, like high quality protein in each of your meals throughout the day? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the crux of it. Mm -hmm. um, it obviously the, the, the factor of most importance is total nutrition by the end of the day. Yeah. And so if we're talking specifically about protein, then if somebody takes in somewhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight, which in pounds is 0.7 to 1.0 uh, grams per pound of body weight, then they're, they're consuming enough protein to uh, maximize muscle growth in, in most cases. Okay. And so <clears throat> the distribution of the, the constituent doses of that total uh, can potentially be important. Um, if we were to look at the, the extreme, if somebody were to try to consume, let's say 150 grams of protein or 200 grams of protein in, in a single meal, there would be practical limits to that. There would be some logistical problems, let's say, to attempting that. But not only that, um, going beyond the practical level, uh, it's not necessarily maximizing uh, the way that the body builds muscle kind of at the micro level. So the process of muscle growth at the, at the micro level involves muscle protein synthesis. So you're building, you're incorporating um, um, muscle proteins into the tissue. And this can happen on a per meal basis. And the way that it's maximized is by achieving a certain minimum of protein per meal. Now, the problem with trying to cram all of your day's protein in a single meal is that there appears to be a ceiling uh, a maximal amount of muscle protein synthesis that can occur per meal. So in theory, you can take two groups of people and feed one of them 200 grams of protein in one meal. Mm -hmm. And then you can take the other group, feed them 50 grams of protein in four meals. And then you run the, you run the experiment, you optimize total calories. You put them on the greatest possible resistance training progressive periodized uh, program ever. You make sure everything is in place. 
in theory, the, the people eating their, all their protein in one meal a day will not have the same rate of muscle gain as the guys eating four doses of 50 grams of protein each. Mm-hmm. And this is because the, the, four, the four meal guys have accumulated more muscle protein synthesis per meal, per day, per week, per month. And so um, that's the theory. I, that, that experiment has never been ran but I would put my money on the, the more idealized distribution of protein intake versus just the single, single bomb of protein. So, um, so yeah, it it gets a little bit uh, messy when you look at uh, protein and how to optimize it for muscle growth. Yeah. Yeah. And then when we look at, when we advocate a high protein diet, there's obviously going to be some people who don't take as well to it because that stigma hasn't been completely pushed into the past yet of a high protein diet is dangerous. So how would you kind of, what would, what would something, how would you say to those people? I like to go back to the studies that were conducted and just say, these were done poorly. Um, the recommendation for protein now, so you're viewing a high protein intake based on a recommendation that is for just survival and not, you know, accruing muscle mass. Um, I just, what, what would you say to those people that they kind of, they're scared of increasing their protein or having a high protein diet? Mm. Well, that's, that's, that's a legitimate question just based on how we know what, what the ultimate policing organ of, uh, protein and its metabolites are in the body being the kidneys. And, um, we know, we know the kind of the, the hypotheses around, uh, and a more acid diet could potentially compromising bone because you have to alkalize the blood somehow so it leaches calcium from the bone and all this, mm-hmm. all this stuff that, that makes sense on, on paper. It sounds like re- reasonable concerns and hypotheses. And so the only thing left to do when you have a hypothesis is to test it. And so uh, my friend, uh, Joey, I always call him Joey because I learned that from Brad. Brad calls him Joey, but no one calls him Joey. Jose Antonio, okay. um, he ran a series of studies with Anya Ellerbrecht, another, another friend of mine, good person. Um, they ran a series of studies on protein intake ranging anywhere from about 2.3 all the way to like four and change, but usually cutting off at about three, the, like the low threes um, grams per kilogram of body weight. So two to three grams per kilogram of body weight ran in a series of experiments. Uh, and this range is certainly higher than what is typically recommended to optimize muscle gains. Um, but even amounts as high as three grams per kilogram drag out over six month periods. There is no indication of um, adverse clinical type of outcomes from protein intake at this level. So we're talking about uh, liver, kidney, bone, all the indexes of, of, of health in those departments. It just doesn't show up. And this is among healthy, healthy subjects. Nobody with some known pre-existing kidney disease. So if you do have kidney disease, then it's probably not a good idea to be slamming three, four grams per kilo um, with protein. But for normal, healthy individuals, 
being afraid of consuming two to three grams of protein per kilo is the same thing as being afraid of uh, consuming two to three gram grams per kilo with carbohydrate or fat. It's mm -hmm. like, it's just a freaking macronutrient. Our, our bodies are perfectly well equipped to metabolize yeah. it in, in various amounts, even in, in, in the higher end there. So uh, these experiments have been done. There've been several now. There's at least five studies looking at protein on, on various um, health parameters. And it just, uh, the hypotheses were, were had to be shot down because it, it never panned out. Yep. I remember reading one of those studies. Jeez, I think they went as high as four grams. Um, and the conclusion, mm -hmm. they, they basically said in the conclusion, you don't have to worry because you should have seen the pain of the participants trying to reach this amount of protein in one day. It was literally a concentrated effort all the time. And yes. so that's something I like to tell people as well. You don't have to worry because if you're getting into any kind of area that's been looked at for dangerous effects and there still hasn't been any found, you'll know because you're making a concentrated effort. Oh yeah, it was very tough for the subjects of that particular study that you're talking about where they, they compared 2.2 grams per kilo versus 4.4. That was it, 4.4, yeah, yeah. Grams per kilo of body weight. Um, I think it was an eight week or 10 week study. Um, um, my memory is, is failing me. I think it was eight weeks, Okay. but it was around that, that time frame, And, uh, I, I actually spoke with, uh, with Joey a bit about that study. And he mentioned that there are certain things that they couldn't fit into the manuscript, but, um, a lot of the subjects reported sweating while sleeping. Wow. So the literal meat some, sweats. <laughs> uh, meat sweats, like overnight sleep, sweats, meat sweats. And uh um it's it's pretty interesting. Um the avenues of thermogenesis that could have been increased through that high of a protein intake. And the interesting finding of that study was uh no no significant change in, in body composition, even though the subjects ate an extra 800 calories of protein on top of their habitual intakes. So their habitual intakes were already kind of at the, at the higher end. They were already optimized. These were, these were athlete, athletic people, athletes who were already consuming like the low twos grams per kilogram yep. of body weight and protein. And so much more protein than that isn't going to do much in terms of adding muscle but what it did was very interesting. It just seems to have disappeared. <laughs> and and the, my, my speculations about that are, it was a combination of um, increased uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, uh, an increase in potentially uh, um, energy excretion. So maybe an increased output of, um, either fecal or urinary output of, of, of calories. Mm. And uh, then the other, the other possibility would be just genuine good old uh, misreporting or underreporting of the intake. Um, <laughs> because in the literature, people tend to, uh, people tend, uh, I'm sorry, over-reporting. Yeah, over-reporting over of, of the protein intake. Okay. So okay. in the literature, there tends to be an, an, an underreporting of junk of junk desserts, so fatty, carby foods and sweets and things they tend to get underreported. Mm -hmm. 
And here we have protein and the healthy stuff it tends to get overreported. Yeah. So the overreporting of the protein intake in this case could have been a combination of just, just genuine uh, unintentional, you know, just error, human error. And also the element of, of, of shame associated with, once again, not, not following instructions and not, mm-hmm. not being able to achieve the assignment from the research staff. So, um, and, and so, yeah, there, it's just a very interesting study and a very interesting outcome. And I, I think that the, um, the effort in getting all that protein in through the course of the day could have also increased uh, satiety or, or fullness. Mm-hmm. And that would lead to um, a driving down of the intake of the other macronutrients. And so that would more or less explain the lack of weight gain and the lack in general of any kind of uh, change in body composition over the eight weeks, despite eating 800 calories above and beyond their normal intake when that 800 calories is just pure protein. And, and of course the implications for practice of that study are very interesting as well to where um, you can use protein as a dieting tool uh, to control weight gain basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, yeah, so it, some interesting implications from that particular study you bring up. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And I su- when you say prevent weight gain, it's primarily through the increasing the appetite and hopefully, or sorry, decreasing the appetite, increasing satiety and driving down that, uh, the intake of the other macronutrients. Yes, that's yeah. right. Just kind of this, this special effect that, that protein might have on thermogenesis as well as, um, eating behavior and, and, Kind of you know the constrained uh, intake of the other other macronutrients just to get that that protein in and that the effect yeah. it has on satiety yes gotcha okay so coming up on time now i have one more question before i get into three i call them hot takes they okay. they can just be quick fire ones uh, okay. they're kind of questions i got when i said i was i was having you on but um yeah they they require less of a you know a kind of explanation but just if you could give me three to four non-negotiables when it comes to nutrition for lean muscle mass in just the general young or middle-aged population. Three non-negotiables for gaining muscle mass. It's going to come down to get enough calories, get enough protein, and make sure your resistance training is progressive. So, getting enough calories for maximizing muscle gains, or at least are you talking about gaining muscle or, or keeping it gaining, gaining. gaining. Okay. Yeah. So getting enough calories for gaining for most people is going to involve a caloric surplus. So you need to be taking in more calories than you're burning by the end of the day, end of the week. Um, and that surplus, it can span, it depends on the population for, um, for rank beginners who are just starting a program uh, and they are going full bore on their, their um, training. And like I said, they're just starting out. A lot of beginners can, can push a pretty dang high caloric surplus. And this would end up being partitioned towards um, the lean tissue and also uh, used as energy for the training bouts and the increases in training load, training volume. So that surplus can be pretty substantial 
four to 800 calories, five to 500 to a thousand calorie surplus you can impose. And that's been seen in the research in newbie trainees. And they, they just soak it all up and they use it towards the goal of muscle gain. On the other hand, you've got advanced um, subjects, yeah, athletic types, people a little bit closer to their ultimate potential for muscle gain. And they're just kind of trying to push the envelope. Uh, those folks stand to gain body fat a little bit easier with these high, higher surpluses because they have a lot less potential left over to put on lean tissue. So um, in that population, then you're looking at lower surpluses, more around the two to 400 calorie mark or the 250 to 500 calorie mark for caloric surpluses. Mm -hmm. uh, the nature of those surpluses is, is a whole other discussion, but um, I wrote a paper about that uh, on that topic. It's called the magnitude and uh, and nature of the caloric surplus for um, for for muscle gain. Yeah, I think I see it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a title. It's so <laughs> these titles of my papers are so freaking long. It's like a paragraph. And, and um, but yeah, that I wrote a paper on that, and you can actually go to my website. I, I linked the article. Um, I linked it to the strength and conditioning journal. Unfortunately, it's not an open access, but people who know how to get these things will get their hands on them. <laughs> they have to we, buy it. That's the only way, right? It's the only yeah. way everyone knits them. <laughs> right. We, we don't, we don't have to talk about how to get <laughs> our hands on it, but <laughs> we know how to get these things. Uh, <laughs> um, and so, so that's the calorie side of it. Um, the protein side of it, another non-negotiable is, once again, for muscle gain, uh, the evidence converges upon a range of about 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of body weight. Um, and, and kilograms, that's uh, 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight, and that would be mm -hmm. your protein intake. Uh, there is kind of a side question associated with that is, um, do I do, do I base protein on lean body mass or do I base protein on, on total body weight? What if somebody... Um, has obesity or what, you know, what, how do we reconcile these things? And so, um, if you want to get a little more, more, uh, into the weeds with this, then you would base your protein needs on your target body weight. Okay. And so, uh, that works both ways with muscle gain and with, uh, with fat loss, um, it's basing protein needs on target body weight. That way, you don't have to worry about whether you're basing it on total body weight or lean body weight or overshooting it because the person's obese or, or what. Yep. Um, and then uh, the resistance training program has to be in place. It's got to be progressive and it has to have all the, all of the, the elements working for it. And so those would be three non-negotiables for muscle gain. Great. Great. That's, uh, that's definitely going to provide a lot of value. Okay. So three, Quick fire, hot takes. Okay. And I don't know if you know what I mean by hot. You probably, I'm, when I say hot takes, I just mean um, they're probably less kind of agreed upon. There's less of a consensus in the research. Uh, there <laughs> might be a I'm, lot of arguments about them. Controver I'm, I'm bracing myself. <laughs> so one is branched chain amino acids. Are they effective? Um, are they a recommended supplement in your eyes? Not if you're getting enough protein. Okay. If for some reason you, let's say you're, you're an elderly individual and you're having a hell of a time consuming 
much more than let's say the RDA for protein, which an average adult is like 54 grams, okay, 0.8 grams per kilo, then you can, you can make a case for supplementing with the branch chain amino acids. I still would supplement with the, the full spectrum of the essential amino acids, but mm. you can make a case for supplementing with a BCAA if all you can get in is like 54 grams of protein a day. But other than that, it's a waste of money, waste of time, waste of energy. Gotcha. Gotcha. And just a small bit on that, actually, just from my own understanding, when we look at leucine and the branch chain amino acids as rate limiting, it's a funny name because I think I've read, I've read a review before and my friend has told me about this, that they're not just the rate limiting amino acids. I mean, if you have a complete absence of all the other amino acids, they're not going to do a whole bunch. Is that, is there any truth to that? Yes. Yes. There, there is truth to that. Um, and there's research directly comparing the anabolic effect or the muscle protein synthetic effect of branch chain amino acids compared to a matched amount of branch chain amino acids with the rest of the essential amino acids. Mm. And there's a kind of a, a um, at least a hypothesized threshold of, of uh, branch chain amino acids that would uh, maximally spike muscle protein synthesis. So this is somewhere between two and four ish grams of, of, uh, of leucine. Okay. And so uh, that has been compared to um, BCAAs plus the rest of the EAA, so a full-spectrum EAA. The full-spectrum EAA actually caused greater muscle protein synthesis than just the branched-chain amino acids on their own. And so, but then that, that would make sense. Yeah. It would, it would make sense anyway. So just because the, um, the BCAAs would be the key drivers, you kind of still need the rest of the bus to make things happen. Gotcha. So if you're skipping a meal to take BCAAs in a shake, you got to expect that there's going to be less... Oh, sorry. Did you hear that? Do, 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 do. Several moments later. Okay, now I can hear you. So okay. I basically said something and it activated Siri and that just fucked everything up. So I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You got to love that, man. You got to love it. Yeah, no, so, so we, were, we were saying that um, that branch chain amino acid, you, you were in the middle of saying that if somebody uh, skipped a meal, and they decided that, well, I'll just sip, you know, some branch chain amino acids to kind of make up for the anabolic effect that I didn't get with that meal. They're, they're still sub-optimizing the growth response. Perfect. Yeah, that was my question. Great. I think that's actually going to be very, very important information for some people. Um, okay. And, so and let me also sorry. mention, Patrick, let me also mention that um, a diet that at it consists um, uh, like a, a sound diet, a normal, well-constructed diet that has enough protein. The protein within that diet is always is already going to be somewhere between eighteen to twenty-six percent branched-chain amino acids. And so, um, it's been said by a very wise man. I wish I could remember his name. That supplementing with branched-chain amino acids in the face of sufficient total daily protein is analogous to turning the sprinklers on when it's raining. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Okay. That's really, really good. I like that. That's very, very informative. Okay. Uh, the next one is, should we combine a source of carbohydrates with the protein in a post session workout? Will it 
enhance the absorption of either or? The short answer to that is not if your protein is optimally dosed. Okay. So there are a series of experiments that were done in the late 90s, early, early 2000s, actually, that compared protein by itself or amino acids by themselves versus that same protein or amino acid dose with a high glycemic carbohydrate. Okay. And the combo of the high glycemic carbs plus the amino acids and or protein spiked muscle protein synthesis to a higher degree than the protein and or amino acids on their own. But, and this is the big but, the protein dose was typically the equivalent of about 10 grams. Mm. So once they started running these same experiments with protein doses that exceeded 20 grams, then there was no additional anabolic effect of co-ingested carbohydrate, no matter how robust and glycemic the, the dose of carbohydrate was. Okay. And so those were the short-term anabolic response studies that were later corroborated uh, in a longitudinal study where they didn't just measure short-term MPS response, but they actually measured uh, effects on body composition over time when comparing protein plus carbs post-workout versus protein by itself post-workout. And there was no difference in the increase in muscle gain. And this is by Hulmi, H-U-L-M-I, uh, and colleagues. Um, so yeah, we can, we can strike that from the, uh, from the presumptions that, that you need to consume carbohydrate and protein together in order to maximize the anabolic response. Now, will it hurt to consume carbs, carbs at that time? No, it won't. Uh, is it an opportunity to consume extra calories if you're having trouble um, meeting your caloric needs by the end of the day? Yeah. Um, however, not every population needs to do that. Uh, specifically, if, if you take a, um, an individual who's trying to economize on calories and trying to economize on their carbohydrate intake, or let's imagine they just prefer to consume their carbs at some other point in the day, mm -hmm. then they're not shooting themselves in the foot by excluding carbohydrate in their post-exercise meal. Okay, great, great. And then the last one is, um, I know we've kind of touched on this already, and but I'm, I suppose it's just a tiny one. Is it, I don't know when this would ever be a case, but if someone was asking, is it a caloric surplus or total protein intake that is most important for muscle gain? Like I, I see the kind of ignorance in this question, but it's just something I, I thought m m some people might ask. That, that's a very interesting question, man. Um, it's, it's kind of both. <laughs> it's hard to pick one. It's almost impossible to pick one. Yeah. Um, because it's almost like asking what's more important in, on a car, the engine or the wheels. <laughs> They're both indispensable. Yeah. So it's impossible to logically pick one. Okay. So it's definitely not Alan Aragon's advice to increase calories without paying attention to increasing protein uh, you know, respectively, or doing yes. vice versa. If the goal is muscle gain, yes. Great. Yes. Great. Now, now, in certain scenarios, we can always look at people who are dieting and want to maintain muscle. And we can also look at beginning trainees who can experience a recomposition phenomenon uh, 
where they actually lose fat at the same time as gaining muscle. But um, those are kind of exceptional periods where uh, protein maybe would, would take the edge over enough calories um, in, in the importance scale. So. Yeah. But, but like, for gaining muscle, period, gaining muscle, it, you can't separate protein and, and, and calories in, in that kind of question. Yeah. And the reason I kind of, no one asked this specific one, this was one of my own kind of idea, but before I started studying nutrition, I would have done sports science in university and I had some friends, I won't even give any more specifics in case they listen and they give me shit. When they were trying to increase their strength and their size in the gym, they were dirty bulking. Yeah. And and there was Mm -hmm. no attention paid to protein. It was all just calories. And so yeah. I was wondering, I, I know there's a lot of people that do that. They just think eat whatever's in sight rather than paying attention to increasing protein alongside that. So, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, that that's the infamous in quotes, the dreamer bulk, the dreamer bulk, the dreamer bulk. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that was a, an old uh, bodybuilding.com meme where um, it's mostly fat gain. <laughs> <laughs> that you gain you, you're putting on scale weight but it's the kind of uh, a lot of it is the wrong kind of scale weight exactly yeah great okay that is literally i think everything i think we hit on most i asked them in very roundabout ways so i don't recognize most of the questions i had written down but <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and will you just tell us everywhere we can find you online social media and any kind of projects you have the research review just where we can find that Sure. You can find all my stuff on my website. So alanaragon.com. And uh, I, I'm pretty active on Instagram. So my Instagram handle is the Alan Aragon and same handle on Twitter. Kind of uh, sporadically active on Twitter. Um, Facebook, uh, it's, it's a fight. It's a fight to get people interested in, in, discussing and debating uh, fitness related stuff. Um, they just all um, disappeared and, and, and just sort of want to talk about uh, politics at this point. So, uh, but we'll see. I'm going to try to make Facebook uh, great again. <laughs> try to try to bring back the, uh, the, the nutrition and, and exercise debates. We'll see. We'll see if I can make that happen, but, Okay. We'll see if people can help me make it happen. But yep. uh, yeah, the hotspots are really are kind of like looking like um, Instagram and uh, occasionally Twitter. But yeah, you can mainly find me alanaragon.com. And I mean, I'll link all this in the show notes, but I definitely recommend, I, like there's a lot of people nowadays that are very, they're, they're showing just their own exploratory interest in nutrition. And I think that your research view is perfect for them because it's, they think that they're able to read research now. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but you provide that perfect medium, I think. Uh, you do it in a way that, you know, they think they're gonna be challenging themselves. It's not a, it's not a health line article, you know? It's, they're gonna be challenging themselves, broadening their kind of horizons and their scope. So I definitely 100% recommend that. Me and all my friends are actually uh, subscribers to that. So I'll link Thank all you that. so much, man. Of course. Really, really appreciate that. It makes me feel like all of the late nights and all the gray hairs are worth it. So Absolutely. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. And that is it. So thank you so much for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. You're and welcome, Patrick. Had a great time, man. 
So there you have it. Hope you learned as much as I did in that amazing chat. I will link up all of Alan's links in the description on whatever platform you're using. I am putting together my show notes page on my website. However, it's just taken a bit longer than expected. I hope to have it up and ready to go at around the 20th episode. And I will obviously backlog the rest of the show notes for the first 20 episodes I did. I just quickly want to mention this challenge I'm running, which starts on October 5th, but there's only a few days left of sign up. It is a nutrition challenge that I branded probably incorrectly as the weight loss challenge. I wanted to emphasize the fact that I'm providing people with tools, habits, knowledge that they can equip to, to achieve a healthy weight for the long term. However, it is possible and I've come to realize that people are seeing this as another influencer or you know, social media personality type trying to make a quick buck off a weight loss program. That is not at all what it is. And no, I did not just refer to myself as an influencer. I would say an influencer type, apologize. But it is a six week journey where you'll improve your knowledge, you'll implement evidence-based habits, and you'll better be able to navigate the food environment. And this should help you to achieve a healthy weight and to and maintain that weight going forward. And so that's why I call it the weight loss challenge. You receive a tailored nutrition program, you receive access to an app where I'll send you daily habits, weekly check-ins. You'll have a direct link with me where we can chat. You'll get access to the Facebook group, which is the only group aspect. And you don't even have to participate in that. Everything else you're just doing yourself. And you'll get a small brief ebook where I just explain the nuts and bolts of nutrition. It's very, very short. And the challenge habits, some of them actually direct you to certain sections of that book. So honestly, it's immense value. It's about the quarter of the price of working with a nutrition professional or dietitian in a one-to-one manner. And yeah, I just really, really think that you guys should check it out. If you're interested, go to www.ubuntunutrition.com forward slash weight loss challenge. And there's a student discount. So the student discount, if you at checkout, just enter the code student, all lowercase, and you'll get 15% off. So, so thank you so much for listening. Next week's guest is Maeve Hannon. You can find her on Instagram at Dietetically Speaking. And that's another amazing chat. So stay tuned, tell a friend, share. Thank you, everyone. Have a fantastic day.